Welcome to a conversation powered by Connected Learning, where we chat with some of today's leading minds about new learning approaches designed for the demands and opportunities of the digital age. Connected Learning values the new ways many young people today access information, gain expertise, and learn alongside peers and mentors using the internet, social networks, and digital technology. We're excited you're here to join the conversation as we seek to make learning relevant. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I am Jeff Brazil with the Connected Learning Alliance. And today, as part of our current podcast series, Make Learning Relevant, we are chatting with Howard Rheingold about connected learning. And if there's anyone who epitomizes a connected learner and a connected teacher, it is Howard. Hi, Howard, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Entirely my pleasure, Jeff. So let me give Howard's bio, which is um, a wonderful thing to do, and there's many places to go with it, but I want to cover the, the places that I think are are relevant and very cool. Howard, among many other things, is a writer, a community builder, uh, online learning expert, and instructor at Stanford University and has taught at uh, UC Berkeley as well, University of California at Berkeley, and really is one of the driving people and, and intellects behind our technology-enabled collaboration, uh, collective action, and, and social learning. His 2000 book, Smart Mobs, was seen as a prescient forecast of the era, the connected era we're living in. He has a TED Talk that he delivered entitled Way New Collaboration, and it has been viewed more than 620,000 times. In 2008, he was a winner in the MacArthur Foundation's Digital Media and Learning Competition and used his award to work with a developer to create a free and open source social media classroom. And he has a popular YouTube channel that covers a wide range of subjects. In 2012, he was invited to deliver the Regents Lecture at the University of California, Berkeley. He also teaches online courses through Rheingold U. And his latest book, NetSmart, how to Thrive Online, which I have on my Kindle and have read, was published in 2012, and you can find a number of book reviews online about it, all of which uh, strongly recommend it. And most recently, Howard's been concentrating on learning and teaching 21st century, 21st century literacies, and I'm very um, privileged to be able to say I, I, I get to work with Howard on a number of projects, and so appreciate it. Is there anything I should add, Howard? No, that's, that's a good start. <laughs> okay, terrific. All right, let's dive right into these questions, if that's okay. So big picture, education and learning issues, there, there's, there's sort of consensus that education and learning and our approach to learning needs an upgrade to move it from 20th century into the 21st century. In, in your mind and with your really, really interesting viewpoint on this, what are some of the most pressing issues and what can we do about, what can, what can be done about them? Well, I'm a, I'm a bit of a dissenter about education, and I always have been. I didn't have a great time in school when I was a kid and was uh, inspired to discover Ivan Illich and John Taylor Gatto and others who wrote about the, the way that it's really not the student's problem, it's the institution's problem, and that schooling as we know it uh, has a lot to do with learning compliance and learning to be a good part of 20th century and 19th century industrial society. Now we are in an era in which the industrial um, assembly line society has, has changed and there's uh, a lot of change going on and there's a lot happening with many individuals. I just uh, read that there are 3 billion people on the internet. It's a lot of communication and, and ferment and uh, change in the way things happen. 
And you need to be able to learn how to find your way by your own compass as things change. And I don't see the, um, the habits and attitudes that schooling instills as, as being uh, compatible with that. I am a believer that all humans love to learn, that, that Homo sapiens is a social learning species like no other, and that schooling teaches us um, uh, what's sometimes called learned helplessness, that we learn by being taught by others. So um, you can be a very good student and you can learn all the, the nerves of the face and the multiplication tables and the other facts that, that you definitely need to know, but is education really equipping people to, to learn and to, to co-learn, to learn with each other? So I've been very excited about developments around digital media and learning that are not so much about the technology as the, the way the technology affords student empowerment over their learning and, and gives some of the responsibility as well as the power over their learning back to the student and I think equips them better to deal with the world that changes very rapidly. You can't go and have the facts delivered to you every day. You're going to have to figure out your place in the world on a daily basis more and more often. Howard, there are so many efforts and individuals that are trying to, quote unquote, you know, reimagine or, or rethink learning um, and education. And you've been at this and in this space for a while. And I'm curious, just from your vantage point, uh, first, I was curious to know, how did you get into the work? What was sort of the occasion for that? And what do you personally want to see happen as a result of your work, but also these others that are kind of joining in on a weekly basis? Well, how, how I got into it is kind of a, a, a strange little story in that a, a friend of mine at University of California at Berkeley said, we're, we're having a, a reading group of, uh, around your book, Smart Mobs, my, my 2002 book. Would you like to join us? And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. It's kind of like a, like a book group, but it's about my book. So I don't have to study. I know what's in it. One of the students in that reading group by the name of Dana Boyd, went to the dean and said, I don't want a reading group. I want a course so that I can get credit for it. So suddenly, A, I am thrust into being a college instructor without ever having planned to be and without any training. And B, in my first class, my one of my students is Dana Boyd, who's an, an intimidating intellect um, even back then. So, I, you know, I, I pretty quickly figured out that um, I... I really didn't know how to teach um, and became interested in, in how to do it. I was invited to teach at Stanford around digital journalism. They needed somebody to, to do that. And after doing that for a year, I, I suggested that I was looking around and Stanford is in the middle of Silicon Valley. And why weren't there any courses in the communications department about social media. I was concerned that young people, my daughter was a student at Stanford at that time, were not, um, they weren't studying in school, was probably one of the most Im important aspects of their personal and professional and, uh, and, and lives as citizens, which was the issues 
raised by social media. So I started teaching a course on social media issues, and it only made sense to use social media to teach those issues, and and discovered as I was doing that at both Berkeley and at Stanford how passive the students had been trained to be. They were expecting me to deliver. Uh, I, I remember being impressed by the fact that I, I taught in a room in which the tables and chairs were all stacked at the side. And the first day as the students came in, they took their chairs and they arranged them without any really conferring about it into roughly rows and columns. And if I had not intervened, I believe that they would have continued sitting in the same place they sat the, the first time. And I don't think that they were even aware that they were doing that. So I thought some deprogramming has got to be involved in this, which was what led me to discover Postman and Weingartner's book, Teaching as a Subversive Activity, and began to realize that there were educators going way back before the technology, back to Dewey and Vygotsky and Paulo Freire and, and, um, and a lot of others who were about student empowerment and talked about the way the institutions really reinforced the, the, the political agenda of the society they were in rather than equipping their students to think for themselves. So that's sort of what got me into it. And what got me excited about it was that when I started admitting to my students that I wasn't entirely sure that I knew what I was doing as a teacher, um, could you help me by telling me what's working and what's not working? I discovered that when I, be, I admitted that vulnerability and opened up to them, that they, it took a little convincing that they began to, to work with me and we began to redesign the course. And I discovered the more power and responsibility I gave over to the students, to the point of asking them to form teams and co-teach with me, the more they began to wake up that kind of deprogramming, rather than deprogramming, you might think they've been lulled to sleep a little bit, and this is an opportunity for them to to wake up. If I was in your class, uh, in your in your class, and and what you're teaching now, just give me a sense of what's different uh, and would stand in contrast to a more traditional course at a college. Well, I start out by asking the the uh, the students. To, and I'm increasingly calling them co-learners, to take one minute to write down the, the three most important questions they would like to be able to answer by the end of the, of the term. And then I ask them to turn to each other and spend one minute selecting one uh, from, the, from the six between them, selecting the, the, the single most important one. Then I ask them to, to form up groups of four and to select one from the four. So I end up having four or five questions that are kind of distilled in, in just a three-minute period from what the, the students themselves are asking. So A, I'm starting out by, by with a student's voice. B, I am starting out with inquiry. And C, we begin our inquiry with the, with the questions that they feel are, are most important. So I, I really try to start in the, that sense of empowering them. I then, um, I've, I write all of the uh, 
themes of each week on the on the whiteboard around the room and I ask people to gather in roughly equal groups around the themes that interest them the most and those groups of three or four students um, I then say are you are my co-teaching team for that module we will use our online media to come up with a rough plan you and I will meet together in person a week before class, and then you're going to help me teach this class. You're not going to try to, to convey all of the information in it. You are going to, to decide among yourselves what you think is the most important aspects of the texts this week and pick something that you can engage your fellow students with. And so each of the students in the class has an opportunity to stand up. It's about a third of the class. And and run the class for that period of time. So you know that's part of it. I asked them to do uh, mind maps of what we did last week. Uh, I asked them to create a lexicon on the wiki in which the co-teaching teams identify words and phrases from the texts, from our conversations, put them on the wiki, and then I ask everyone in the class, kind of Wikipedia style, to de define the lexicon as they go along. Uh, we have a weekly face-to-face -face meeting, but also they are required to participate in conversations during the week that continue our classroom conversations in forums and, and blogs. And at the end of the term, I ask them to take all of their blog posts, their forum posts, their, their wiki edits. I ask them to submit questions every week. Each one of them uses a uh, Google moderator to submit a question that they are willing to lead discussion on for each of the texts and then vote up the ones that they want to discuss in class. I want them to take all of the, this material that they have created and to make a single narrative. So think of this as your kind of your final paper um, in which they put th those fragments together and then glue them together by writing some narrative uh, interstitially that talks about what they've learned. They use the words in the lexicon. I'm, I'm asking them to, to really revisit what they've done and tell a story about what they know now that they didn't know then. So that's, those are a lot of the things that they do. We don't really have papers per se. Um, we don't really have tests per se. And a lot of the responsibility for the teaching and the learning in, in ways that are is not normally done, they tell me, um, is on the student. And, and so two questions, how do the students respond? I mean, how have they taken this up? And then maybe this is a related question, but what's what have you found to be the most challenging or a really challenging aspect of this? Uh, the most challenging aspect is that um, these students have been highly trained and I think have experienced a great deal of anxiety uh, about uh, getting really good grades, figuring out what's on the test. And they are so concentrated on the grades that it's a little bit difficult to, to move them off that and, and reflect uh, on their own learning. Sometimes it's magical and we form a lear learning community in which people are not just sequestered, uh, trying to uh, to bank their own knowledge for their 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 own purposes, but they are co-learning. They are 
um, helping each other learn in a way that they couldn't do if they were just doing this as individuals. But I can't really make that happen. I can try to create the conditions and facilitate it, but a lot of it's up to the students. And one of the things I've discovered, I've discovered a couple of things. One is that it really helps to have a lead learner or two who get what I'm talking about and take the leap. Others are sitting back waiting for them. Once you have a lead learner or two, then uh, it helps to have a first follower. Once that starts happening, things start falling into place. The other thing I discovered is that uh, if I can get students together socially, if we can all go out to dinner early in the quarter, you know, I didn't realize the degree to which students don't know each other. They, they, they come into a class, they may know a student or two, but they don't really know who everybody else is. And it's, it's not easy to do that no matter what kind of exercise you do within the class. But if you, if you can get them together informally, that helps. So one, one thing that I've, I'm, I'm going to try next uh, time is uh, the at the end of the first class, I'm going to say one of your assignments for the first week, I want you to, to team up with others, twos, threes, or fours, it's up to you. And during the week, I want you to go out and get a cup of coffee or have lunch, do something fun and pleasant together. And in the process, I want you to talk about your social media use, which is the subject of the, of the course. So I haven't done that yet, but I think getting them to know each other as people is, is really important. And I find that I have not been at this long enough, almost 10 years, to really always gauge what's what's going on in their heads there's usually two or three i can see are really getting it there are two or three who really have a a problem with this kind of learning and then the, the ones in the middle i'm not sure where they're at until i get my anonymous evaluations at the end of the quarter and i'd say that a majority of the students really get it but it's a quarter and that's not very long and sometimes it takes until the end of the quarter for them to get it. So I think that my, my biggest frustration is it just takes a while for them to, to break their old habits for this one class, enough to open up to something that, that does end up being really exciting to them um, if, they, if they open up to it. Howard, I wanna ask you a couple of questions about connected learning. Um... Uh, you know, we the, the theme for this podcast series is make learning relevant. And in the connected learning framework and approach, we sort of see relevance as a fourth R. We've talked about it as a fourth R in addition to the, the traditional three R's. And I'm curious to know from your, again, from your vantage point, what do you think it means to make learning relevant? What what needs to happen to make learning relevant? Well, you know, again, it, uh, I'm hesitant to generalize to other subjects, but the, the, the subject that I teach is in, in intrinsically relevant if if you frame it that way, which is about issues raised by the use of social media. Uh, you know, you probably, if you're an engineer, you're you're going to use calculus at, at at some point, and if if you're going to go into the field, then then ancient Greek literature will be re relevant to what you're doing. But whatever you're you're going to be doing in your in your life, professionally and socially, you you are going to be using, and and the the subject of social media. So, I ask people to reflect on 
what's the texts mean to them, to their lives, uh, to their relationships, to their society, and kind of expanding concentric circles. Maybe this applies to other subjects, but I find that asking them to use their blogs, because I think that a blog is perfect for this kind of reflection, to not just talk about what the facts are that in the, that that are proof that they've read the texts, but I want them to apply the texts to what can this possibly mean. So I think part of relevance is is turning that around and asking the students to to look at how what we're learning is relevant to what's going on around me. People have different ways of describing the the connected learning approach. Different folks have different points of emphasis. You've been involved in the digital media learning work from the, from the beginning and then very involved in the, in the connected learning work as that, as that concept and framework has evolved. How do you describe connected learning to other people and what's the aspect of it that is most exciting to you? Uh, the, the first thing that, that I, t I talk about is what is most exciting to me, which is student empowerment. It's, it's, I'm, I'm sure that every teacher experiences this in some way or another. It's when what you have been um, trying to teach uh, turns the light bulb on and they, they feel that they have some more power than they didn't before. And I'm particularly interested in student empowerment over their own learning, that they go beyond what I'm giving them and they go out and, and, and find on their own. But I also think that, you know, besides teaching a, a subject that I think is relevant uh, about social media, social media connect people to the world. And we have a way of connecting to, to knowledge to asking questions and getting answers, to connecting to personal learning networks of people all over the world. So the networked part of connected learning, I think, is is very important as well. And 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 part of that is the cooperative, collaborative aspect of learning, which I think has always been there. Uh, I mentioned social learning; we're the the uh, the primate that is by far better than any other primate at learning by 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 watching um, each other so we do learn together and the invention of culture and speech and 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 writing and print all of the inventions in the way of media that have propelled um, human uh, civilization to to more complexity have to do with sharing what we know is just tremendous leverage if that you don't have to reinvent the wheel you can you can write down how you invent a wheel and then people in distant times and places know how to do that i i, I still think that that's uh tremendously exciting but the, the learning experience again in traditional schooling is far less social in fact if you get too social it's it's cheating so i like the idea that learning together, learning collaboratively, learning cooperatively, tapping into networks. Um, and as part of that feeling empowered, empowered not just as an inv individual, but as a, a part of a learning group, as a part of a, a community, as part of a, 
personal learning network. Um, those, I think, are to me, those are the most exciting aspects of it. Yeah, you mentioned social media. You have a major presence on on social media, and I continually see people from all over the world um, expressing, uh, you know, wonderful messages and like you know gratitude for a lot of the resources that you put out there for people. I'm curious to know if because you must hear from lots of folks around the world. What is your sense of the appetite for this globally, even just outside of the U.S.? You know, it's it it has. The appetite has been there uh, for a long time since uh, I first got online and discovered Usenet. You know, a lot of people think that social media started with Facebook somewhere around 2005. But in 1980, there were, I think, close to 100 different countries that were connected to Usenet. Um, people, I think, um, human need to connect with other people and curiosity about learning from other people is it, it's sort of like water if it will find its own level and if there's a a way that it will leak through it it will it will uh, leak through and when a new medium comes along that enables people to connect with each other and learn from each other uh, people will flock to it um, in fact i think you can you can talk about the, the telephone originally was conceived as a broadcast medium, but people began using it socially. Um, the internet was for researchers to connect. The, the original ARPANET was for researchers to use data on one co computer in one place and run it on a program in another place. But the people who were running the program started communicating with each other socially. And to their credit, their directors said, instead of saying get back to work they said oh this is, looks like it's a new communications medium again with texting sms i think there's i don't know how many trillions of sms messages that was originally for engineers to communicate with each other about building networks and somehow or another teenage girls in scandinavia and japan discovered that they could message each other without their parents or their teachers hearing so time and again i think people will appropriate inventions if they enable them to connect and communicate in new ways and you know i give away so much stuff online because i learned very early that um, i get 10 times as much back uh it's i mean i started out to be a writer so you know a, a writer is, uh, is is someone who communicates to others i need to have paychecks coming in so that i can pay the bills but um, it turns out that if I, I give away an awful lot, an awful lot comes back to me. So I, you know, I'm, I think maybe I like to think that I'm a, a good person who likes to share, but, but frankly, it's been a, an effective strategy for me all along. You know, I think I read recently, and you tell me if I'm wrong, because you, you're the person to know this. I believe this month is the 20th anniversary of the very first international conference for the World Wide Web which was held, I believe, in Europe. And I'm really curious to know, given your breadth and of investment in this whole arena, what do, what do you think of what's unfolded these first 20 years and what do you see coming? Well, I, you know, I don't think anybody could have possibly seen the amount of knowledge and information that would become available in so many forms to so many people. And when, if, when you had a a 1200 bit per second modem and 
um, green text on a on a dark green screen. How could you imagine YouTube? How could you imagine um, hypermedia? You know, there were people who foresaw aspects of this, but really what people invented was astonishing. And, and the most astonishing part is that, uh, that it was invented by the users. I, I think that it's naive to discount the role of the U.S. Defense Department and the creation of media. But if you had left it to them and had left out the, the visionaries, the Engelbarts, the Ted Nelsons, the Tim Berners-Lee, um, we wouldn't have what, what we have. The, the web was not invented by the, the government. It wasn't invented by a corporation. Um, in fact, in, at the beginning, if you said you were going to make money on the web, people laughed at you. It was invented by millions of, of people putting up stuff. And some of that stuff was pictures of their dogs. And some of it was enormous repositories of of knowledge, just uh, as someone who, for whom the public library was a sanctuary when I was a, a kid, um, you know, I had to get on my bike and I had to ride to the library and I would walk through the stacks. Now, being able to just pull something out of my pocket, ask any question and get answers anywhere within seconds is, is miraculous. Of course, I've, I've written in, in that smart about the fact that the authority that we've, we have vested in the text is no longer there that those answers I get it's it's I can't trust that those answers have been vetted by an editor and a publisher and a librarian it's up to me to figure out um, whether this is good information or bad information or disinformation uh, but so much is available if you if you like knowledge and you like connecting with people it's like we're living in a, a world of color and the world had been black and white uh, before. So I'm totally amazed by it, continue to be amazed by it on a daily basis. I'm very concerned, as Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the web, is concerned that there are strong forces. There are forces of the state, of governments. We, we just read today um, in the New York Times about Russia instituting Chinese-like controls over expression of its citizens online. Um, and uh, I just read today that Tim Berners-Lee has, has warned once again that Facebook is in danger of enclosing the web. There are an awful lot of people who believe that Facebook is the internet, is the, the web. Um, we won't continue to have a resource that continually astonishes us if it's not created by populations, but is created by organizations uh, or or corporations. And then there's the whole issue of net neutrality. You gotta be a, a technology geek and a policy wonk to even really understand what it's about. But what it's about is can, uh, can Tim Berners-Lee invent the web without asking permission? Can a couple of kids in their dorm room invent Yahoo or Google without um, requiring the company that that transmits bits to to change something, uh, to rewire something, uh, that's all being contested. And this wonderful open sharing, um, inexpensive resource may not always be that way. Are you in generally general optimistic, Howard? You know, this is a question I'm always asked. I'm I'm accused of being 
an optimist. I'm held up as kind of a strong man for the technology uh, enthusiast, but you know, I'm 66 years old. I don't see how anyone can be that old and have any education at all and be optimistic about what humans have done to each other and are doing to each other and our ability to come together to to survive as a species. It's I, I am not optimistic, but I chose to be hopeful uh, at an early age because uh, I think if you're going to be a nihilist and you're going to be true to yourself, you're not going to live very long. Uh, so what are you going to live with if you're not an optimist? Well, I believe that I and everybody else alive is the descendant of people who said there must be some way out of this uh, terrible, impossible situation. I think that asking that question doesn't guarantee you're going to survive, but not asking the question uh, guarantees that you won't. So, um, you know, miraculous things have happened before. Humans do terrible things. We also have this wonderful capability of, of, of pulling uh, the iron out of the fire at the last minute of coming up with something. So it's an exciting time. I think we're, if, you, if you look at evolution, uh, human evolution has really been pushed forward by dire necessity at, at, at many intervals. And we are facing dire necessity from multiple threats to our existence right now. And, you know, a lot of the tools that we use were invented because people foresaw this and they felt that we needed better tools for problem solving. That was the whole impetus between behind Douglas Engelbart in the 1950s and 1960s, trying to convince people that, that computers could be used to think and communicate with as, as well as to do payrolls and scientific calculations. So I think that we've got this great asset, which is uh, how many billion, six billion people um, and our minds and our ability to socialize and communicate and learn from each other. And we have these fantastic tools, three billion people on the internet, something like six billion mobile phones. If only we could learn to use those in a way that would benefit all of us if we could we could somehow balance self-interest with our collective interest i think that we have all of the ingredients for surviving and thriving um it just is not automatically going to happen some we're going to have to do something well howard uh that is a good place as a, as a good place to end as a call to action uh, quite honestly there's lots of work to do i love the tensions that you pointed out um, there is a writer whose name escapes me, but I believe the line is, uh, life can be a feather bed or a trampoline, and I'll take the trampoline every time. <laughs> and so um, that's what you're describing. We have this great, incredible opportunity ahead, but also, you know, real challenges. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's something that we have to decide what it's going to be, right? Yes, it's up to us. You know, the, uh, the tagline on my email since 1985 has been, what it is, is up to us. I love that, Howard. You have been you are you're one of the most generous people I know with your uh, with your knowledge and your expertise and your time. And uh, I want to thank you for this and uh, for taking a few moments to be with us today. And I hope we can catch up as we down the road as we do some other series with the Connected Learning Alliance. So thank you so much. Just really quickly for people who want to either immerse themselves in some of your work or your projects or find out more about what you're working on and what you're thinking about, where should they go? 
Well, Stanford University was very helpful in providing uh, assistance and in, in pulling all of my digital assets together. So if you go to Rheingold.com, R-H-E-I-N-G-O-L-D, uh, there's a lot of material there. Also, I put out a lot of material and I connect with people um, every day on Twitter. So I am H. Rheingold on, on Twitter and I welcome people connecting with me there. Thanks for joining us here at the Connected Learning Alliance. If you missed any of this conversation or want to listen to more discussions, check out our website at clalliance.org or subscribe to our podcast channel on iTunes. See you back here for more talks with change makers and thought leaders who are building the next generation of learning.